So, Father, we, um, we want to thank you that we can come and pray to you, that we can lift up our voices in praise and adoration and thanksgiving. and We can come boldly to your throne of grace to find help in our time of need. And I thank you, Father, that that's true. And I thank you that we can thank you, actually, even before we ask you for anything, because we know that you're at work on our behalf. You, you say that you cause all things to work together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And, and though we may not see the good always, Lord, you promise that it's true and that when we are afraid, we must put our trust in you. And so that's what we want to do, Lord. We want to um, trust you for all the prayers that haven't been spoken, for the sons and the daughters and the husbands and the wives that that uh, need your healing touch or need your hand upon their lives, Lord. We just lift them up to you now and, and name them in our minds, these, these ones that we love, Lord, who need your guidance and your help father and we pray that you would keep reminding us that we are to be a thankful people a people of praise because we know that we know that we know that we know that you are at work on our behalf and i thank you for that lord god and i thank you for the comfort that it is and and i ask you now lord to help us to see through the scriptures we're going to look at your hand at work and how it can assure us and reassure us and and reassure us again that that we are not alone and that we belong to you so I thank you, Father, for all that you will do, all that you have done and all that you will do. And I praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're on um, session three. And uh, unfortunately, session two did not go online this week because that was my fault because I couldn't figure out how to do it. I took the thing home and couldn't do it. So, um, hey, session two didn't go on no session one the homework went on but not the um, recording um, yeah so um, but it will go on because I it will not beat me <laughs> I will get it on there so um, uh, Isaiah 41 then uh, one of the questions in the homework was Isaiah 41 can be divided into three sections what are they because we only last week we only looked at the first 10 verses and the Isaiah 41 is 29 verses long. So what are the sections? If you did the homework, and now shame on you, because you'll be seen not to have done it. Um, <laughs> everyone's shaking their heads woefully. Um, what, what are the three sections that you can divide it into? You couldn't. What didn't you understand about can be divided into three sections? <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness my goodness five yes yeah, Rosie said she got five se sections yeah yes exactly exactly Jenny take a bow that is the three sections of Isaiah 41 it's God talking to the nations, or described as the coastlands, and yeah, up to about verse 7. 
And then speaking to his people, his protection of his people Israel from verse 8 to verse 20. And then his knowledge of the future or his telling of the future, because of course the future belongs to God. So of course he knows it, but it's his uh, telling of what's going to happen in the future from verse 21 to 29. The reason that I wanted you to break it up like that was to see, okay, He's talking to Israel, about Israel. He's talking about a future for Israel. And it's, it's really, we have to be really careful that we don't claim all of this and say it's all about the church because it is not. It's about Israel. But there are principles in there that we can take for ourselves because we belong to him. We looked at that last week. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that we have been chosen before the foundation of the world, that we are part of a church and that is also God's people. So uh, what are the principles we can take from Isaiah 41 um, and use, uh, or at least um, help us to experience peace in a shaking world, which is what this study is all about, knowing peace in a shaking world. So what are the principles that you could take from Isaiah 41 and apply to yourself? Do you think God would be saying to the nations now, for example, uh, verse 1 to verse 6. Coastlands, listen to me in silence and let the peoples gain new strength. Come forward, speak, let us get together for judgment. Would God be saying that now, today, to the nations? Yes, he would, because he's always saying that to the nations. Come on, come explain yourself to me. Why are you not trusting me? Why are you not, you know, worshipping me? This is, what, you know, um, he's, he's going to arouse a king to do his own, what God wants them to do. And actually, how does that apply to us now today, in our world today? God's saying, I'm going to arouse someone who's going to come from the east, and he's going to do this and do that and do the other thing. And he's talking about a human king that he's going to raise up. He's talking about Cyrus, actually, so who's not going to be on the scene for another 50 years or so, 100 years. Yeah. I thought Christ is coming. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's not who, that's not who he's talking about here. He's he's, well, he's no, not the Antichrist. He's talking about Cyrus. He's talking about the one who's going to allow the Jews to go back to Jerusalem. Um, remember. Yeah, how does it relate to us today? If God was speaking to the nations, what would He be saying to them today? Would He be saying anything like this? I mean, we live in very unusual times. That's what I'm talking about. We're doing a course, which we did last one, which was be ready. Be ready. Be ready for what? What, what, are we supposed, what were we supposed to be ready for? We did 12 weeks. What were we being ready for? Jesus is coming back. And what's going to happen before he comes back? Turmoil and chaos. What it looks to be turmoil and chaos. But who is sovereignly in control of the turmoil and chaos? God is. So there is a situation where God is, the whole Bible says God raises up kings and deposes kings. He just doesn't do that occasionally, He does that all the time. He raises up kings and deposes kings. Okay, so who's our Prime Minister? Theresa May. Who's the President of the US? Who's, who's the President of Canada or the Prime Minister of Canada? Who's the President of France? Who's in charge in Germany? Who's in charge in Italy? Who's in charge in the Sudan and in Egypt and in Israel? And in, are we saying now that God's got nothing to do with that? Do you see what I mean? So God is sovereignly in control. 
of the nations of this world. Now, of course, he has allowed Satan to be the ruler of the princes of the power of the air. So that's what Ephesians 3 tells us, too, that Satan is in control. We gave, mankind gave control to Satan, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't raise up kings and depose kings. It doesn't mean that he's not uh, manipulating history to reach the point that he wants it to reach. Are we, do we believe that God's in control of history? Yes. So that's it. So that's what that means. It means that God is sovereignly active in ways we can't understand. Why is Theresa May in power now? I have no clue. Why is Trump in power in the States? I have no clue. Can I look at him and say, well, he must be good because God put him in? No. I can't say, look at any individual ruler and say, well, now, is he God's man or not? Do you know what I mean? Is he for God or not? But, but, but God will use him and is raising him up. It's interesting when you look at the world events and look at what's going on and think to yourself, okay, is this in line with what the Bible teaches? And it is. Yeah, yeah. 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 I do. I totally see what you mean. Well, that's a question yeah. then out there. What do you think, folks? Yeah. How much power has Satan got? Hey. <laughs> sort of. Yes. Yes. Yes, sort of. Satan has no power over believers. None at all. He has no... No, I know. He has no power over you. That is the first thing. That you have been called out of darkness into light. You have been called out of his power into the kingdom of God. He has no power over you. In a way, Keith, that's what you're talking about. No, Linda said... Um, he has only as much as we give him. He's, of course, trying to attack, steal our joy, steal this, steal that. But he, he cannot do that. We are protected by the power of God through faith. He has power over those who don't believe, which is a huge proportion of the world. Exactly. So he does have power in the world. And yes, God has allowed that power because God is God. God could at any moment go bump. But God has a plan and a purpose going on that we can't see. So we know he's bringing history to a conclusion. But we don't know the details of how he's doing it. But we see Satan at work in the world, don't we? We see it here in Isaiah 41 in the nations and what they're doing. But nonetheless, God is at work putting his people in places. Do you see what I mean? Or putting people in places, not his people. Just as he did Cyrus. Cyrus is going to be mentioned by name. Um, um, I can't think which chapter it is, but he is going to be mentioned. Here he is, chapter 45. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, 
his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose uh, the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. So there's a sense, well, it's laid down here, not a sense, it's written that God raised up Cyrus and did these things to enable his people to get back into Jerusalem. Now, who would know that except if you were reading this? Cyrus was the king, the emperor of Persia, and it was the Persians who defeated the Babylonians. Cyrus was a Gentile, he was Persian. Yeah, so mm. just because Trump professes to be a Christian or, or whatever, yeah. we don't know their hearts. So no. We can't actually say that no. and make those assumptions. Right. But the comfort for me, if that's the right word, is that what we've learned last week is that God put them there. He's in control of it. Mm. Yes. I think the thing is, it's too difficult. To, you see, it, when we're, we, li we live with a human perspective and we look at everything individual, we look at individual situations, individual issues, we pray about those individual things. So we might look at Trump, okay, he won the election, that's a shock. Why did he win the election? Maybe God's doing this through him. Therefore, maybe he's a Christian. He says he's a Christian, so maybe he is. But we're just looking at Trump. So what I think the Bible is calling us to do is get ourselves above above the individual issues and start to see things as God sees things. So now it's not the individual issue that is, I'm dealing with. It's the overall thing. What do I know overall? I belong to God. He is mine and I am his. So I'm going to align myself with him up there. I'm above Satan. Ephesians tells me that I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places far above all rule and authority and every name that is named. That's where I belong. So I'm going to try and lift up my eyes and look down. So it's dragging myself back. Come back out of the individual. Yes. Yes. Get yourself up where God is. Yes. What's he promised you personally? Right, and, and so he's promised you glory and you're headed for glory and every single one of his promises will be true in your life and you will go to be with him for eternity. But he hasn't promised you an easy road and he hasn't promised you no sickness and no difficulty and no trial. So it's, it's when you face a difficulty, it's like, okay, this is part of my life. This is part of life on the planet. How will I honour God through this difficulty? That's the thing, because if we're constantly trying to put out fires, we're not seeing anything from up there. We're seeing it all from down here. And I think, I think the whole Bible's screaming at us, get yourself up here where you belong. <laughs> get yourself up here and start looking down. Um, so the, what's God's word? So his word to the people is, um, there's judgment coming and I'm the judge. 
and get yourself in order. <laughs> and whatever you think you're doing, I am raising up people to do my will, whether they know it or not. Right? So there's that. Then you come down to verse um, 8, and you say, he starts talking to Israel, his people. What can I take from verse, verse 8 to verse 20 that I can apply to me? And that includes, of course, verse 10 that we looked at last week. What can I take from those verses that, will, that, that I can know for sure for me? Yeah. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Why? Because I have chosen you and not rejected you. Now he's talking to Israel. He's chosen Israel, not rejected them. But you and I know because of the New Testament, he has chosen me. John 17, Jesus said, God gave people to Jesus. Jude chapter, Jude verse 1. Beloved, called of God, kept for Jesus Christ. That's you and I. We are kept for Jesus. We're First Peter chapter 1, we are protected through faith by the power of God for our salvation that will be revealed in its fullness in the last time. So these promises are all true because we're chosen. Chosen before the foundation of the world. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely, definitely. He is a mighty, powerful God. It's like that song we listened. When did I forget he's the king of the world? When did I forget that God is the king of the world? He is in charge. And we forget when we start to focus on individual issues. Um, so I can take just even that small thing. Um, I can take and, and say, that is true of me. Um, the afflicted and the needy are seeking water, but there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them myself. As the God of Israel, I will not forsake them. I will open up rivers on the bare heights and springs in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land fountains of water. Um, uh, I will put the cedar in the wilderness, the acacia and the myrtle and the olive tree. I will place the juniper in the desert together with the box tree and the cypress. And, and that's what God did physically. Physically, he's done that for Israel. He brought them back. And now we're seeing that the, the desert and the wilderness is blossoming in a ways we could never have imagined. So this has happened for Israel. But what's he saying for me? When you're feeling dead and dry and thirsty... I am the water of life. I will bring a river of living water out of your innermost being. I will be that. Hello, Michelle. Hi. Um, I will be that person. I will be God for you. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. It seems horrible. But see what I'm saying is... If we look at every individual thing that's going on in our life, we will starve to death and, and thirst to death because life is hard most of the time. It's not easy. So if you're constantly trying to sort this problem out, then as soon as you've got that sorted, 
here comes another, and here comes another. And just when you thought that was all done, and you could just sit back and watch the TV for a while, something else comes bombing in. And you're, you're ending up, literally, going from one crisis to another crisis to another crisis, trying to figure it all out, and pray about those things. And what God is saying is, I will be your life-giving water. You just have to get yourself above all these things. And trust Trust me, we all say we trust God. But when we pray, we're always praying for what he says he's already done. You're praying, God, give me your spirit, fill me with your spirit, do this, do that. Let them sense your, your presence, blah, 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 blah. Are you a Christian? Are you? You've got the Holy Spirit. Okay, you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, why not? Because you're filled with so much other junk. You just got so much junk in there and it's taken up space. And what did we say last week? Get rid of that stuff. Lay aside all the stuff that's taken up space. I'm not saying we don't have to do certain things. Of course we do, you know. My, daughter, my granddaughter, my eldest granddaughter, is having to change schools because she's had a hard time at the first school. And so that's hard. It's hard for my daughter. It's hard for my son-in-law. It's hard for me, you know. And, and you could zero in on that problem and, oh, Lord, please do this and please do that and please figure this out and please find her a school that she's going to like and please find her a million friends and please this and please that and please the other thing. And then in the end, it's like God's trying to shout, shout. What are you talking about? Haven't I promised? Haven't I promised you that I will be all that you need and all that she needs and that I love her beyond your wildest dreams and that you can't even ask for what I'm going to do for her because I'm going to do abundantly, exceedingly, beyond anything you could ask or imagine. Do you see what I mean? It's like trust. Exactly. Praise God. Praise. Yes. Yes. I'm not saying we don't intercede, because we do, but most of our interceding is for people who don't know the Lord, because they need our interceding. But if I'm praying for you, Jackie, I'm not going to be praying, oh Lord, do this for her, do that for her, because I feel like God's saying, well, what are you talking about? I'm already doing that. I'm already doing that. So thank me that I'm already doing that and ask me to help Jackie to understand the fullness of what I'm doing. Do you see what I mean? So it's a different concept. And that's how I think we have to look at all the problems that we're facing, all the difficulties. We have to get ourselves above all of this and look down from God's perspective. Otherwise, we are constantly, as I say, putting out fires. We are just constantly moving from one crisis to another crisis to another crisis. And I'm not saying they're not hard. They're hard. Life is hard. You know, it's hard. It's hard for believers and it's hard for non-believers. But we are supposed to live in a different place to non-believers. We're supposed to be offering hope. Well, what hope is there that you're offering if you're constantly on your knees trying to put out a fire? So that's what I think Isaiah 41 is, is, is saying. God's saying, do you know what? You can't understand it, but I'm in control of history and I am bringing things to my conclusion. This is my world. I am the king of the world and, and I am going to work things out the way I've said I will work them out. And on the way, I'm going to take care of you. But you have to trust me that I will do that. Um, mm. 
Mm. Yes. Yeah. For us. That's it. Exactly. Well, so take that one step further, Wendy, then. So take that and put that into your life situation at the moment. What's your life situation at the moment? No, I mean, we don't need the nitty-gritty, but <laughs> one of the situations. Yeah, so you're looking for a house. Okay, so how does the fact that God is for you come into play when you're looking for a house? Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But why would God be bothered about that when he's trying to fix the empires in the world? And? 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 That's true, but and? Because God loves you. He loves you with an overwhelming love. We can't even imagine the love that God has for us. Uh, we glimpse it now and then, but we can't imagine it. If we could actually see the love of God that's in Christ Jesus for us, we'd never get out of bed. We'd just stay there wrapped up in it. We just never would want to move. It's because we don't trust that love that we get into that tailspin. <laughs> that's why we need to do this. That's why we come together. That's why we pray. That's why we, get into, why we open the Bible, because he reminds us. Did you forget? Did you forget? You know, it's so Isaiah 41 is that, are you afflicted? Do you need water? Is there a problem in your life that only I can, only I can deal with? Then just lay that out before me and trust that I will. Um, okay, so what's the overriding message of the whole chapter then? Because at the end, in, from verse 21 to verse 29, he just lays out what the future is going to be. Um, uh, and he's challenging the gods of the other nations to say, okay, you tell me what's going to happen. And none of them can because they're all wooden statues. So he's saying, this is what's going to happen. I've aroused one from the north and he has come. From the rising of the sun, he will call on my name and he will come upon rulers and upon mortar, even as the potter treads clay. Who has declared this from the beginning that we might know or from former times that we might say he is right? Can you see what he's saying? He's saying, I'm doing stuff you cannot even imagine. I'm bringing people who will perform my will even though they don't know they are. And you know, may not understand all the details of it, but I've told you in advance I'm going to do this. As I say, this is about 100 years before Cyrus comes. It's an amazing prophecy. So um, what's the overriding message then of the whole chapter? For anybody who actually read it. <laughs> hey? God is in control and trust, yes. Because God is in control, what's his message to us, his challenge to us? Trust me, and that, what does that mean too? So do not be afraid. That's the center of this chapter. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. This is who I am. This is who I am. This is what I'm doing. This is what I said I would do in the past and I am doing in your day. I am doing it. Now, do not be afraid. Put your trust in me. And the only way we will be able to do that is if we know the God that we 
are trusting. We have to know God to know his peace. If you don't know God, you don't know peace. If you don't know God, you don't have joy. If you don't know God, you will not be able to navigate through life. It is too difficult. It's just too difficult. Um, And I think I've written two things here. God himself is the reason we do not fear. And his challenge to us is start living in the truth of who he is. Start living in the truth of who he is. Now, and the second one, I better say this before I go off on one again. Stop assessing him in the light of your circumstances. Stop looking at who God is through the circumstance you find yourself in now. Of course. That's what I mean. They just come bashing you over the head. Yes. And and if you start looking at the circumstance, you take your eye off God and put it on the floor. And and that can never work. And this is not pie in the sky, see, you know, this is not well you're just it's the power of positive thinking. You're trying to think positively about your situation because I'm the Bible's saying and I'm saying don't think about your situation, think about God. Think about God, who he is and what he's promised and what he will do. Um, So start living or walking in the truth of who he is and stop assessing him through looking at your circumstances. Okay, so I want to look at two separate um, accounts to see actually how we can do this. And um, I want to go to the New Testament to... um, to the book of Acts, actually. Acts chapter 27, which is quite a long chapter. Um, but it's the um, account of a storm, actually, a storm um, in the life of Paul. And, um, yeah. Um, uh, 27. When you get to twen- chapter 27, Paul is um, he's going, he's on his way to Rome, and it's about 59 or 60 AD, um, and he, he had been in a prison in Israel, or in Caesarea, for two years, and then he was transferred from that prison onto this ship that would take him to Rome, where he was eventually going to be in prison for another two years. So um, this storm, if you like, is in the middle of another storm. It's in the middle of a storm of imprisonment. But this storm is an actual storm on an actual boat. And that's what's interesting about it, because his whole life is a mess, actually, (laughs) from a human standpoint. He's been in prison in Caesarea. He's going to get on this boat. There's going to be a storm and a shipwreck. And then he's going to be in prison in Rome. So humanly speaking, his circumstances are rubbish. So how does Paul navigate through the circumstances so that he understands, so that he knows peace in his world that is shaking? And that's what I'm interested in. Um, uh, Paul knew he would go to Rome. Um, If you go back to Acts chapter 19, could somebody read um, verse 21, please? No. Yes. Uh, Acts 19, verse 21, please. Macedonia and Achaia, saying, 
Yeah, so he knew he was going to Rome. He knew that he would go there. Look at Romans chapter 1. Somebody read verse 14 and 16. 14 to 16, please. Romans 1, 14 to 16. Thank you. What does he say? So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. He knew that he would at some stage reach Rome. He's writing to the Romans to say, I'm, I'm on my way, I'm coming, and I'm really glad I'm coming. But Paul had no idea that he would come through um, this journey, that he would be in prison in Caesarea, he would be on a ship that was in a, a shipwreck, and that he would eventually get to Rome and be in prison. And that's the interesting thing about this. He knew he was going to Rome. The Holy Spirit had told him that. You're going to go to Rome and you're going to preach the gospel. You're going to stand before kings. You're going to stand before emperors. You're going to do this. Now, if God came to you and said, I've got a purpose for your life, and you're going to stand and preach the gospel to kings and queens, and you're going to meet all these people, and you're going to actually be speaking about Jesus to them, would you have thought that you would do that from a prison cell? You will expect God to do it in a blaze of glory, won't you? You'll expect it will be wonderful and there'll be trumpets blasting and everybody will be pleased to see you and you'll be standing up in all your best gear and speaking to the Queen of England and telling her about Jesus. And, and, and that's what we think. None of us think that we're going to glory through a shipwreck and prison. None of us think that. We all want the glory all the way. <laughs> And all the trappings of the glory all the way. Um, Romans uh, 15, Paul says in Romans 15, verse 28, uh, Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. Paul thought by the time he got to Rome, he would so have finished his, what he needed to do there. He was going to go straight on to Spain from Rome. See what I mean? It's like we have these ideas in our head of what God's going to do. And then he does something totally different. And we don't like it because <laughs> usually it involves a storm. Um, so that's the first thing, really, the first point. How often uh, we know what God wants us to do. But when the circumstances look a bit different than the way we thought they would be, we start to question. We start to question. Okay, God, I get it that you want me to live this way and do this, but I thought if I did live this way and do this, you'd make life easy. I've told you about my niece who gave up her um, fiancé because he didn't believe and she knew she couldn't marry him. She couldn't align herself with an unbeliever. And she thought she'd given him up so God would make him a Christian. Because I did the right thing, God, didn't I? I mean, I did it. You told me to do it, and I did it. And he didn't make him a Christian. And then she thought after the year or two, she'd meet someone else who would be a Christian. And he would love her, and she would love him, and it would all be great. And five years down the line, she hasn't met him. 
and she's still waiting. And it's like she did exactly what God asked her to do. She lives her life for the Lord. She does. And God does not make it easy for her. Hello, Maureen. So, do you see what I mean? It's like we want things. Okay, I'm obeying God. I'm doing what you're telling me to do. So you should be doing what I'm telling you to do. You should be making my life really simple and straightforward. Um, I've got two questions here. Well, one, yeah, two questions. Where are you going? And what has God promised you? Where are you going? And what has God promised you? Somebody read Acts 27, verse 1 to 8, please. Acts 27, verse 1 to 8. Thank you. Okay. Um, Difficulties mentioned quite a few times, and we're going to pick that up in a little while. But the first thing is, um, is Paul the only prisoner on the boat? No, Paul is not the only prisoner on the boat. And the way this is written in the original Greek implies, at least, that the, men, the other prisoners were on their way to execution. So they were on their way to death in Rome. And that's interesting to me, because what I wanted to ask you was, in your difficult situation today, who's on your boat? Who's with you in your boat? Because Paul wasn't the only person, <coughs> the only prisoner on this boat. And we travel all the time with lots of other people on our boat. And... So first of all, who's with you on your journey? Who has the opportunity to hear the gospel from you on your journey? And all of the people on your journey, or most of them, are on their way to death. That's the reality. If you travel on a boat with unbelievers, they are headed for eternal death. Why on earth do you think God's put you on that boat? There's a lot of questions in there. There's supposed to be three. <laughs> but 
Why are you in your boat? Why is your sea rough? Why is the difficulty starting to mount up and mount up in these first eight verses? Why is it difficult to go from one place to another place? Why do you think you're ha you are in the chains that you're in, in the on the prison that you're in at the moment? Because there are a multitude of people in your boat with you and they are on their way to death, but you are on your way to life and glory. Why would God put you in that situation? And what does he want you to do? They're all just questions, you know. At first, the weather looks okay. They start off, don't they? They go off and uh, they get about 80 miles, it is, um, in one day. They get to Sidon. And then uh, they change ships and they get onto another bigger ship. And then the strong winds don't lessen. And as uh, Sue said, there's a lot of difficulty, difficulty, difficulty. And they struggle to get to this place uh, called Fair Havens, which is near the city of Lassia. Uh, verse 9, when considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them and said to their men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Paul is on that boat. He's gone through shipwrecks before. He's lived a while with the Lord. He knows that these things can happen. He's been on a few boats. Okay, look at your life. How many boats have you been on in a storm? Why do you think you've been on all those boats in all those storms? So that you can have experience. Why do you need experience? Because there's a lot of people around you that don't have that experience. So... He's put Paul on this boat. Paul is looking at the weather. He's looking at the ship. He knows this is headed for trouble. And he tells them, I perceive, what is it? That the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. Um, what, what does it go on to say? But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what was being said by Paul. Because the harbour was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached a decision to put out to sea from there if somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbour of Crete, facing southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. When a moderate south wind came up, supposing that they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along uh, Crete, close inshore. So, what happens? What happens? Paul says, don't do it. I perceive, which means I know from past experience, this doesn't look good. We're headed for a bit of danger. But do they listen to him? No. Why not? Because they're listening to the majority. He's listening, they're listening to the pilot. They're listening to this. The, the captain is listening to the centurion, listening to this person and this person, and the majority makes the decision. Why would that happen? Why would that happen? They're unbelievers. The only person who's in touch with the Lord is Paul. So they're listening to the majority, and the majority decides, this looks all right. We'll, we'll do this. We'll go. Um, 
and the clinching argument, it looks like, is verse 13, when a moderate south wind came up, supposing that they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing. Um, what do you think Paul is doing when they weigh anchor and start going? He's praying. Why do you think Paul's praying? doesn't say he's praying. Yeah, he knows what could happen, but what else? Yeah, yes. What else? Yes, that's all. It's true, yeah. But what else? Yes, he knows that God's advice has been disregarded. Okay, now I want you to think. Put yourself in Paul's position. Okay, God, I'm here. All right, I understand I've got to be on this boat with all these people who are perishing. You know, they're all going to death. You know, you put me here with all these lousy people. They're all prisoners. You know, why am I here with these? I mean, let's be honest, you know, why am I in this boat, in this storm? I, I don't want to be here, you know. And, and so he's given them advice, godly advice. He's done what God's wanted him to do, and they've ignored him. Well, so what would you do? Okay, that's it then. You're, that's it. On your head be it. I've warned you, you haven't listened, that's it. You know. Exactly, exactly. What's he praying? He's not going to pray that the storm won't come. He knows that the storm's going to come. He's experienced this before. What's he praying? He's praying that God would be glorified in it. How do you know that? Because that's what he always prayed. Pray unceasingly, he says to the Thessalonians, doesn't he? Pray unceasingly. Keep praying. Why? Because so that God would be honoured and glorified through me on this boat. He's not praying for the storm to go away. See, that's what I'm saying. Stop praying for the circumstance to go away. You know what? Because as soon as it does, there's another one and another one and another one. And, and what are you doing? You're just praying for God to fix it. You want him just to fix it all the time. Well, as far as God's concerned, if you've believed in Jesus, it's fixed. You're fixed. You are going to glory that's so wonderful that this is a momentary light affliction, Paul will say. It's a temporary shadow of the reality that's yours. So now, the situation you find yourself in, the situation Paul's in, Paul doesn't look at it and say, oh God, I prayed and they didn't do what you told me and, and, and I've told them and I don't know what I'm going to do now, so I'm just going to pray, Lord, cut the wind, change it all, make it all okay so we can get to where I'm supposed to go without any problem. What he says is, okay, whatever happens here, glorify yourself, glorify yourself, be glorified in me, in me. In this storm that I can't have anything to do with. I can't control the storm. I can't make it right. I've asked, I've told them what to do and they're not doing it. So now, now glorify yourself. So I want to ask, I want, really want you to write this down. Do you do that? I mean, really, do you do that? We're all nodding. We're all agreeing. But do we actually do it? 
in the situation that doesn't change, in the difficult situation that is not changing, are you saying, okay, God, if this is the life you've cast out for me, help me to glorify you in it. I'm tired of asking you to change it. Help me to live for your glory in this life. Because the promise is not just, it's not like God saying to you, okay, you just got to hang on by the skin of your teeth every day of your life and it's going to be really horrible. It's going to be horrible and horrible and horrible and it's never going to get any better. That's not God's message. His message is live for my glory and you will be filled with so much joy you won't know how to contain it. But we don't believe him. So we're constantly saying, yeah, but just change this one and then tomorrow I'll live for your glory. <laughs> just fix this. Mm. It is. It is. Yes. Well, you tell me, Sue. You tell me. You tell me. What's the answer for that? Yeah. Exactly. I don't think there's anything wrong with praying for physical healing, but I think we have to do it from there and not from here. I think if we don't do it from there, we're just looking at what we see and coming up with a fix. And it's always a fix. If you just fix this for that person, they don't have to go through that, or I don't have to watch them go through that, or whatever it is, that that will be okay. But we seem to forget. We live in physical bodies that are corrupting and decaying. We're all going to die. Today, tomorrow, 10 years. You know, do you want a Band-Aid on it all? Okay, have a Band-Aid. Have God heal everything all the way through and you don't have a single care in the world, and everything goes smoothly, and you end up on your deathbed, which you will, at 120 or 140, because you lived a long time, and it'll all have been wonderful, but you won't know Jesus. And then you are going into an eternity where there's no fix. And I suppose if we keep our eyes on Jesus, we know that's exactly what Exactly. Exactly. I'm not saying God doesn't heal. He does. He, he does heal. He does heal and he does say to us, pray for healing. That's normal. It's instinct. That's what we do. You know, you tell me you're sick, I'm going to pray, Lord, help her to get through this or, you know, heal her body. Someone's got a brain tumor, I'm going to heal. Lord, I'm going to pray, God, take that brain tumor. Just take it because I know you can. But when he doesn't, I'm going to say, okay, okay, be glorified in this life. Bring this person to know the Lord. You know, help them to see that you are everything. Um, so, do I do that? That's the question. Do I really do that in the circumstances of your life that you are not in control of? Sometimes following cautions, you know, a situation that you cautioned against doing that, and now you're in a situation that you cannot control, you know it's wrong, you know there's danger, what do you do? What do you actually do? How do you pray? Do you really honestly say to God, be glorified in this? Help me to honour you in this.
Well, I think that, yes. You see, the thing is, how long have you been studying the Word? How long have you been studying the Bible? Yeah, I am. I'm asking you, how long? How many years? Okay. Okay, why did you study the Word? I don't want to put you on a spot, no, so... No, I study it because um, I just find it, it takes me out of this, it takes me on. Mm. And I actually enjoy mm. learning more and more mm. and more and more about what it actually means. And there's mm. never any end to mm. it. And so there's always mm. the next question to mm. be answered. So mm. But at some stage, no but, and at some stage, uh, God will say to you, okay, there's a load of learning gone in here. And I know that you believe it. And I know that you've wrestled with it. And I know that you've understood it. But now you've got to stand on that. Yeah. You've got to stand on it. 
And, and if you don't stand on it, you can tell me you believe it, and you can say you believe it, and you can do all of those things, but until you praise me in the storm, no matter what, you don't know whether you believe it or not. So you have to come and do what you've been doing. You've done that. You've come to the one who is the water of life. You are feeding yourself on the word of God. You are taking in uh, the word of life. You're, you're drinking and drinking and drinking, but at some stage, you have to let that permeate your body and your soul and your mind. Do you see what I'm trying to paint a picture? You have to stand on it. And that's what Paul does. That's what we don't do. We take it all in. We say we believe it. And at some level, we do believe it. But when the chips are down, we pray for something totally different. That's what I mean. When the chips are down, you pray, sort this out. I know that. I've seen it with my granddaughter. Oh, Lord, she's such a lovely girl. Please figure this out. Find her a place to go to school. Find this place to be okay. Find her to do this. Find her to do that. Until in the end, God had to scream at me, what are you talking about? I have promised you that this life is going the way I want it to go because you belong to me. And I will work it through you towards and in your family. Trust me with them. Trust me with them. You say you believe I'm God. Give me your daughter. Give me your grandchildren. Give me your husband. Give me those people. And I will do it because I told you I will. Now, you know, this is the thing, isn't it? it? That's the thing. Where the rubber hits the road is will you trust him? And you know that you trust him when you pray the way he would have you pray and not the way that instinctively is coming out of your mouth. Fix this, do this, make this right, blah, 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 you know, make her happy, make this happen, give them loads of money, give them a nice house, help them, let them never be sick. On and on and on and on it goes. And all the time God is saying, what's the best thing for her? What's the best thing? The best thing is that she knows me. And if that takes a bit of trouble, bring it on. I know that's, we can't say that. I'm not expecting, and I don't think God wants us to say, bring it on. I, I, but what I'm saying is get yourself above the circumstance. Get yourself up where you belong with the Lord. High and lifted up and walk up there on eagle's wings, he says in Isaiah 41. 41? 40. 40. Look at what he says. Though young men grow, though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord, wait means hope, yet those who hope in the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. They won't do that in the midst of calmness, and so they're just sitting watching their TV. They'll have to run, they'll have to walk, they'll have to do those things but they will gain new strength. I mean, look at anything in your life that you've come through and God has taken you through and look back at it and say, how did you get to where you are now? Only by God's strength. He came through on that promise. He brought you through. You managed it. 
You might have done it kicking and screaming. It might have been a hard process, but you got through. Barbara, you got through this situation. Look at you sitting here this morning. I mean, it's an amazing testimony of God's grace and God's power. Yes. Yes. Your testimony is is and will be an amazing testimony to the power and the grace of God. You couldn't have got that any other way. And God was right there all the time. Yes, she trusted it. She stood on it. And that's what I'm saying. You know, not for you, because I know you do. But it's, we have to get above. Otherwise, we're no help to anybody. Mm. You know, mm. Will this happen? Mm. Will that happen? It was only when she started praying for that salvation yeah. that they really tried. Yeah. They had to yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Don't tell us that, Maureen. We'll never pray for it. <laughs> well, no, but that's I know. Yeah. Uh, it, it is. You know, it, it is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we better take a break. So, um, I don't know, not long. Five, six, seven minutes. Father, thank you that um, your word is amazing. Thank you, Lord, that um, you really do speak and work through your word, that it's living and active, that it does actually uh, resonate in, in our hearts. And it, when we hear it, Lord, we know that we're hearing truth. And, and thank you, Lord, that it has the ability to cut through all of the stuff of our life, all of the difficulties and the trials and the, and the everything else, Lord God. And it has, you have that power to cut right through and to speak into our innermost being. And I thank you for that, Lord God, because I need to hear your voice every day. So I pray, Lord, now as we go ahead, that you will um, continue to talk to us, show us things we haven't seen, remind us of who you are, that you are the king of the world, and that we belong to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're in Acts 27. I'm going to read from verse, um, wherever we got to, um, yeah, verse 14. But before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called Euroquillo. And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. Running under the shelter of a small island called Clauda, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. After they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables in undergirding the ship. And fearing that they might run around on the shallows of Sirtis, they let down the sea anchor and in this way let themselves be driven along. The next day, as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing us, from then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. When they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not to set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night an angel of God, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. 
Therefore keep up your courage, men, for I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on a certain island. But when the fourteenth night came, as we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. They took soundings and found it to be twenty fathoms, and a little further on they took another sounding and found it to be fifteen fathoms. Fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. But as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship and had let down the ship's boat into the sea on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the boat, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away. Until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. Therefore I encourage you to take some food, for this is for your preservation, for not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. Having said this, he took the bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. All of them were encouraged, and they themselves also took food. All of us in the ship were 276 persons. When they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. When day came, they could not recognize the land, but they did observe a bay with a beach, and they resolved to drive the ship onto it if they could. And casting off the anchors, they let they left them in the sea while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind. They were heading for the beach. But striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable, but the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, that none of them would swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land and the rest should follow, some on planks and others on various things from the ship. And so it happened that they were all brought safely to land. Um, what's your overriding thing that you notice about that chapter? Yeah, yeah, God's in control. They still weren't listening. They weren't convinced. Paul's faith. Yeah, what else? Mm. Mm. Yeah, it is exciting. It is exciting. I think the thing, one of the things that struck me when I read it is, A, why would Luke write all that down? I mean, there's so much detail in there. It's quite amazing. So there's got to be something in the detail me because this is God's word to me so therefore there must be things I'm supposed to learn from the detail yes Luke was on the boat as well that's right he says us at one stage in this narrative but also don't you think it's strange that even through it all even when Paul says what he says and breaks bread and they take courage there's still yet another thing goes wrong and another thing goes wrong and the ship actually does get wrecked and they do have to swim for sure or to come on planks. So it's like Paul does the right thing over and over and over. He tells them, don't be afraid. God has said this. God has said that. I and mean, we're going to just briefly go through it a bit more. But, but even, to, even to the very end, there's still bad stuff happening. 
<laughs> Do you see what I mean? So it's... No, go ahead, go ahead, Barbara. No, go ahead. I thought it really came to me that Paul is with God right mm. to the end, all the way through this. Yes. The angel of, of God came to him that very night. Yes. And said, do not be afraid. Yes. You must stand before Caesar. Yes. And he's granted everyone's life. Yes. He was there, and Paul knew that he was going to Rome, and he would stand before Caesar. I've got a note here from previous uh, discussions. Paul is sure of God before the crisis. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 and it's not as if, even in his assurance, everything gets better. It doesn't. And I think that's really a big thing to, for us. Yeah. It doesn't always get better, even when you do trust the Lord. Because... You know, God's plan is so much bigger than our understanding. So, first of all, just briefly, what did Paul do then? As you go through, what, what were Paul's actions? Because that's what we want to be looking at, really. What, what did Paul do? He's the man of God here. He's the person of God. What does he do first um, when, uh, like, say, for example, for verse 21, when they had gone for a long time without food? What does Paul do? Mm. Just go to 21, though, first of all. Yeah, how? Yeah, how? Yeah, how? How does he know? Yes. But? Yes. On what basis? He's on the basis of God's word. On the basis of God's word, it came to Paul as a, an angel brought God's word, but it is God's word. And Paul, uh, Luke wrote this down for us. So he's writing this down for us to see that Paul stood on the word of God. It came to him with an angel, but it could have been something that Jesus had said to him before. So, but Paul's writing the New Testament, Luke's writing this, and they're living the New Testament out. So these are things happening all the time that God will include for us. So what he's saying is, when you're, so I want to take that and say, when I'm in my boat, when I'm in a trial, when other people are with me and they don't know what I know, do I encourage them by using the word of God? Or do I encourage them with my own self-help remedies? Do you see what I mean? I am so good at that. I can tell you everything you need to do to fix your problem because I've just got so much wisdom. Do you know what I mean? But this is we're being shown the opposite of this. We're being shown that Paul is enabled to say to them, this is going to be okay. Why? Because God told me it would be. This is not okay because I've been through a hundred shipwrecks before and I know what to do. And if we do this and do this and do this, it will be fine. It's specifically, God has told me. God has told me. Yeah, go ahead, Jackie. Yes, there you go. No crumbling for you, Jackie. <laughs> no crumbling. That's the message. No crumbling. I wrote to someone, uh, doesn't matter who it is, but I wrote to someone whose her, her family's in a lot of problems. And, um, and it's really difficult because she loves them. And she's hurting too. But I wrote to her and said, you cannot have that pain. You cannot share that burden because if you do, you can't help them. You can't help them. And you're there 
to be God's person there. You, you, you just can't do it. I know that from my own experience when, you know, a long time ago, when we lost our first child, my husband and I could not help each other because we just hurt too badly, each of us individually. So what you do, actually, in that situation is you don't talk about it. You can't share your pain because the person who you want to share with is also in pain. So actually, you end up not helping each other. The two people who, should, who, who have been put together to be together, to help each other, can't do it because they're suffering so badly themselves. So I know for you, like if your family's in crisis, you cannot take that burden and that pain. You have to be God's spokesperson. Yeah, you've got to stand. You've got to stand. And you can only do that by prayer and by reading and by actually deciding, I'm going to trust you with this. I'm going to give you my family. I'm going to give you this situation. I'm not in control of it. I'm going to trust you for the outcome, whatever it is. <laughs> no crumbling. Yeah, in, in a nutshell, no crumbling. I don't usually like nutshells, so that's why. <laughs> so, um, so again, you come back to who's sailing with you? Who's sailing with you in your boat? in your prison, in your difficulty, in your trial, who's with you, and are you sharing God's word with them? Because that is the only thing that will help them, God's word. All your homegrown recipes are no good. They won't stand up. <laughs> Second, what did he do? Verse 27. What did he tell them? I mean, he, he shares God's word with them. He tells them it's all going to be fine. You, you know, God has granted, um, the angel says to him, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. So now in verse 27, when it looks like they want to jump ship, 27 through 29, they're trying to escape. What does he tell them? Yeah, but not just together. What, what does he actually say? Yeah, what, what do you think we might take from that? Yeah, yeah, but remember, these are unbelievers. There's only one place for God's safety. There's only one ship you can get on. There's only one boat. If you get off this boat, you are lost. What's the boat? Jesus. Okay, you're going to speak God's word to them. Okay, if you want to get off this boat because it's too hard and the storm's too bad, you can get off this boat. You are free to do that. You can jump ship, but believe you me, you are lost if you do so. The only place of safety is where God says it is. Where does God say it is? In the boat who is Jesus. There's only safety in God's word, in God's son, in God's salvation. There's no safety anywhere else. Even if you survived by jumping off this boat in this storm, you would be hitting another storm. That's what life is, a series of storms. You need to be in the only place that's safe, and that's in Christ. Um, what's the next thing? Um, and what does he say, actually? Yeah, just before we go on to the next thing, I've just seen my notes here. What does he say... Paul told everybody that God's promise was that he would keep them safe on the voyage if they stayed on the boat, right? It's always God's way, isn't it? John uh, 14, verse 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God except through me. But what do you notice about Paul in this situation when he told them this? 
See, Paul knows the angel has said what to him? He's granted you everyone who stays on the ship. Yeah. So, so remember, Paul could have said anything. He could have said anything. He could have come up with his own wisdom and said this. He didn't change his message to suit the circumstance. He just spoke the truth to them. So you can't change your message to suit the circumstance. You might want to. You know, I want desperately to tell my daughter that it's all going to be wonderful for my granddaughter. That she's going to go to the next school and it's going to be fantastic. But it may not be. See what I mean? I cannot change the message. The message is God loves my granddaughter and he will use everything in her life to bring her to him. That's the message. And my job and my daughter's job is to continually pump her full of the truth about Jesus, who he is, what he's done, how much he loves her, how much he'll care for her, what he will do, where he will take her, all of that, so that she can stand in the midst of it. Eight. She's lovely. And I think I honestly think it's temporary, but, um, but nonetheless, it's real. And... Um, so I'm, I'm using her only as a small example. You've all got examples, haven't you? You've all got examples in your own life, with your own children or with you. And there's only one place of safety, real safety, and that's in Christ Jesus. And we must be telling that. So what does he do when he's told them? He says, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away. And then what does he do from verse 33 on to verse 38? He encouraged them to have food. Yeah. Yeah. How does he do that, though? You're talking about crumbling. This is about crumbling. How does he do that? Yeah. God, yeah. He did the most normal thing in the world. He broke bread in the midst of the storm. He just broke bread and he said, just take courage, this is all going to be fine because God's told me. Do you see what I mean? He didn't, what so you said, crumble. He didn't crumble. The bread crumbled, but he didn't. He didn't crumble. He acted on what he knew. And he ate the bread. Mm. 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 So he, he did what he was telling them to do. He took courage and he did the normal thing. And he proved, actually, Paul knew God's word and he based his life on it. And he trusted his life to it. And that took me uh, away from Acts 27, as if that wasn't enough to take in, to Hebrews chapter 6. Because Hebrews chapter 6... Uh, is the place that God wants us. He just It's the most strange chapter that God would put these verses that we're going to look at because it's a very debated chapter about salvation and the assurance of it, but we're not even going to look at that. What we're going to look at is verse 13 to verse 20 because it talks about the anchor for our soul and anchor and ship go together and so I think that's what took me there. Could somebody read verse 13 Hebrews 6, 13 to 20, please.
Thank you. Now, there's a lot of um, strangeness in these verses, but what I want to look at is what God says about uh, his, his promise to us. Um, because Paul banked his whole life on the promise of God for him. And what I'm saying, and I, what I think the whole Bible is saying, is that we have to bank our whole life on the promise of God for us. And um, what's the thing that you take from these verses? Just... What do you think God wants you to know? Not in detail yet, just the big picture. What does he want you to know? Yeah, so... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, all these things true, yeah. Yeah. Don't you think that God wants us to know that our salvation, everything he's promises us is absolutely assured. Absolutely assured. You need not be afraid at all, ever, that what God has promised he won't do. His promises to you are, will definitely come true. There is no doubt that they will be true for you. Um, and how does he? How does the writer to the Hebrews tell us God has made sure you know that? Yeah, he's made a promise and then he's made an oath on his own promise. So he's saying God has doubly confirmed this to you. He has doubly confirmed that his word to you will, will be true. Now what do you think God wants you to have because of that? Assurance and peace and faith and confidence. Confidence. He wants you to live with confidence in his word and in who he is. In who he is. Now, what will the enemy want you to do? What wants to happen? He wants to shake your confidence, shake your hope, shake your peace, shake your circumstances. On and on and on and on and on it goes bringing more and more difficult circumstances to get you to do what? Lose your confidence. Lose your assurance. Yeah. I remember you once gave us a phrase. Oh, yeah. That's not mine. It's somebody else's. Yeah, in the light. Exactly. That's not mine. I don't know whose it is, but I probably read it somewhere. I, I was saying last night, I have never had an original thought. I haven't. That's the truth. I honestly don't think any human being has had an original thought. We all learn from someone else. 
Maybe Adam and Eve had original thoughts, but we didn't. We learn from someone else. And, and if you read, I read a lot, always have done, and, I, and I, you pick up things. So, but yes, I don't know who said it, but whoever he was or she was, it was good. Never doubt in the darkness what God has told you in the light. So that means on a day when you don't have a trial and you, you can read the word and pray and joy's filled your heart and the sun's shining, the birds are singing and you hear a promise from God. When you next go through a trial, trust that promise. Don't let the circumstance, same thing, don't let the circumstance change your assessment of God. Um, he... He wants us to understand and truly believe that we have this inheritance, that we have it already, and that we're going to realize the fullness of it when we go to be with him. And I think that there are a few practical ways that we can lay hold. He says, uh, this hope we have as an anchor. Uh, No, where is it? Lay hold. Oh, yeah, 18. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to, to take hold of the hope set before us. And I think there's some practical things that we can do to take hold. What does it mean to take hold of the hope, first of all? What would that mean in real terms? How would we take hold of that hope? What would we have done? Own it. We'd feel secure with it. We would trust it. Own it. Yeah, possess it for ourselves. Take hold of it. Own it for yourself. And how can you do that? Okay, how can you do that? What's the first thing? There you go. So meditate on the scriptures that tell you about the promises that God has made, the hope that you have. Don't just read them. Really think about them. Meditate on the truth of them. What does it mean that I am going to glory? What is that glory like? What does it mean that God is changing me from glory to glory every moment that I keep my eyes on Christ, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord? I am being changed from glory to glory. What does that mean, actually? What does it mean that one day a new heaven and a new earth will be and there'll be no more sorrow and no more pain and no more crying. There'll be no more evil. What does that mean actually? What does it mean that I don't belong here, I belong there, that my citizenship is in heaven? It's all me, it has, it's full of meaning. What does it mean to me? And how, Lord God, help me, how can I put that into real practice in my thinking, in my feeling, in in my living? So meditate first, read the scriptures and meditate on them. And then pray that God would open your mind. That's number two. Pray that God will really open you up to believe these things, to trust them. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And then read and think about Christians who've gone before you. I said about original thought. I've never had an original thought. Everything I ever say comes from the word and from someone else who I've heard say it before me. So don't, you know, that's the reality. And I think that's true for everybody. I have, we listened to Carter Conlon last night. He's a pastor at Times Square Church. And he was saying exactly what I say. And it was like, don't say what I say. And then I realized I'm saying exactly what he's saying. And we're both saying exactly what someone else said. It's because that's the truth. 
Uh, read about other Christians who have laid hope, laid hold of the hope they have in Christ. I've got an example in 1934. Uh, for example, in 1934, when 28-year-old John Stamm and his wife Betty, missionaries to China, were being led away to execution by the communists, someone on the road asked, where are you going? John laid hold of the hope set before him and said, we are going to heaven. That's what it means. Lay hold of that hope. We are going to heaven. We're not going to our execution. We're going to heaven. That's, that's what it means. So that's the third thing. Read about other Christians who've gone before you. Read Hebrews 11. <laughs> All the, the Christians, or the men, of, men and women of God, not Christians, who went before. That, that The writer to the Hebrews says, we have such a great cloud of witnesses. Make up your own great cloud. Spurgeon and Wesley and, and Tozer and Hudson, you know, Hudson Taylor who went into China and George Muller who started the orphanages and Andrew Murray who, who you know, did what he did. Read about these people, Amy Carmichael and all of these people. Gladys Aylward who went to China. Read about these men and women of God who did these things and who laid hold of the hope, no matter the circumstances. Number four, get together regularly in small groups and help each other to do these things. You know, how long have I been bleating on about the fellowship of the burning heart? This is what it is. It's a decision. I'm going to lay hold of the hope that has been set before me. I'm going to lay hold of it, but I know I can't do it on my own. I need help. Get together with other people who will help you do that. This is God's will for you. It's God's will that you have this confidence and assurance so that we don't crumble. <laughs> I love that word, Jackie. I'm going to use it, of course. <laughs> um, and now God's going to turn in this passage from laying hold of this and he's going to turn and tell you and give you another picture about your future and he calls it an anchor. What is the anchor in this section? What is the anchor? that he says is, it's the hope set before you, we, that we take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of, our, of the soul, a hope sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. So the hope, the truth, the thing that we are confident in is sure and steadfast. It has entered within the veil. And then he says, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. So, the hope is something set before us. It's the future reality. How do we know it's our future reality? Because Jesus has gone before us. Jesus has gone before us. Um, and in verse 14, he says, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely um, multiply you. So what is anchoring your soul? Is it your experience of the word that he's promising you? This is what he's saying. You see, he's not, he's not saying that the anchor for your soul will be your experience of it. 
what is he saying is the anchor for your soul? The hope set before you, Jesus has entered before. So your, the anchor for your soul is nothing to do with how you experience it. It is only to do with what it is. What is it? It is that Jesus has entered into the most holy place. He is the forerunner. He has done that. He is your anchor, right? And, and what's that anchor like? How is it described? Steadfast and sure. So what are you hoping for? What, what is he trying to tell you about the thing that you're hoping for? Sorry, I know I'm pounding the same thing, but I really want us to get it. What, is, what has God told you about your anchor? It's steadfast. What does that mean? It doesn't move. Where is it? Within the veil. Where's God? Within the veil. Where is your, st- your anchor? It is set, set in the presence of God. That is where your anchor is. It's steadfast. What does sure mean? Certain. It's certain. Absolutely certain. And if it's right in the, it, within the veil, right in the very presence of God, who can move it? No one. Satan can't get in there. No one can get in there to move that anchor. It is sure and safe and steadfast and certain. It is firm and reliable and it will never move. Yes, but yes, we will get there. But that anchor, that anchor is to your soul. You are anchored to heaven. Do you see what I mean? This is what he's trying to say. The anchor is already there. Where are you? You're at the other end of the chain. Yes, you're at the end of the other end of the chain. So tell me, is there a possibility that you could be dangling off the end of the chain? Is there a possibility that you could come off the end of the chain? Because you're not where the anchor is. Your soul is still down here. So, tell me, what, what, how, has he, how has he explained that to us? We're in the boat. Yeah. Right, we're in the boat and the anchor's in heaven. Okay, you're in the boat. So... I, I, we've got to be sure of it because we're supposed to be certain and confident of this and we're supposed to base our life on it. We're supposed to base our life on the fact that this anchor is sure and steadfast. This hope of eternity is absolutely set. So what does the anchor, what does the, the hope of this, what does that thing do for me? I, I'm not explaining it really very well because you're looking a bit odd. <sighs> No, not exactly, although we're getting that way. So, what does the anchor, what does the work, the finished work of Christ promise me? Me. But why does the writer say, hold fast? Look at what he says. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope sure and steadfast. No, where are we? Uh, Verse 18. Uh, Impossible for God to lie. We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope. That's something we do. We have to 
take hold of this hope. So what is he trying to tell us? Because this is sure and certain and steadfast. What is he it's trying to tell you? Mm-hmm. But, but t- t- yes, 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 that's the eventual end. But, but you have this hope, and that is encouraging you to take hold of it. If you have a hope, an anchor that is sure and steadfast, and t- but you've got to take hold of it, then, oh, my goodness, I, I can't take hold of that. I'm lost. I've just been cut adrift from the anchor because I can't take hold of it. If it's got anything to do with me, I can't do it. Yet God says it's sure and certain. Do you see what I mean? Follow the thought. I'm supposed to take hold of it. And what's part of the anchor, the part of the promise is? What is part of the promise? It's the finished work of Christ. So whatever God calls me to do, I am enabled to do because he has promised that I am set and sure and steadfast. Do you see what I mean? So now, you you said, it's only as good as our belief, Keith, right? So I know my... Yes, but I know, but I don't believe very strongly, usually. My faith's like a mustard seed, tiny. It's tiny. So... So what do we have to believe then? What, are we, what is part of the anchor? Part of the hope is that Christ will do it when I can't. He will enable me to lay hold of the hope. He will enable me to hold on. He has done so far and he will continuously because he has done a finished work. What does he say in Matthew? Matthew, wherever it is, I can't remember. If you have faith like a mustard seed... You can move mountains. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It's exactly like that. But it is also the promise when I can't hold on to Jesus. He will force my hands to him. Do you see what I mean? So there's, there's an enabling power going on here, a gracious power that is at work in me because God didn't just give me the anchor in heaven and leave it dangling. He gave me his spirit to enable me to do what I cannot do on my own. And it's really important that we understand it because otherwise you base everything on your own ability I can't hold on. Yes. There you go. There you go. Yeah, yeah. There you go. It doesn't make sense. It's a mystery. But that's part of it. That's part of it. It doesn't make sense from a human perspective because when I look at myself, I know I cannot do it. I can't do it. I cannot hold on. But he has promised. Philippians chapter 3, is it 3? No, 2, 2. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who is at work in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. If God has told me to lay hold, he will enable me to lay hold. And not only will he enable me to lay hold, he'll give me the desire to lay hold, even when I haven't got the strength. I'll be praying, God, I haven't got the strength. Help me to lay hold. Rather than, oh, I've given up this now, Lord. 
will be always praying to go on to lay hold. Help me to lay hold because I can't do it. You've promised you will enable me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul will say, through all the labours, yet not I, but God who, who worked in me. It, over and over in scripture, he's, he's doubly telling us, if I've called you to this, I will enable you to reach it. Now, why do you think I'm linking that with um, Acts 27? You're probably wondering, you know, why? Why are we linking that with Acts 27? Right, 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 yes, 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 definitely. What's the result of the gospel when I've believed the gospel? What is the result of the gospel? What is the gospel? Now, I don't mean in, you know, Christ died and came, but what is the gospel? How is it described in scripture? Good news. The gospel, it's the gospel of the grace of God. The gospel of the grace of God. That's what it's called. In, uh, it's the gospel of the grace of God. Jesus is the grace of God. Everything about the gospel is Jesus. His death, his burial, his resurrection. But the gospel is the grace of God. What's the grace of God? Don't say Jesus. Yes, sort of. What's the grace? Just Sort of. The grace of God is the power of God. It's the power of God. It's the power of God unto salvation. The gospel, uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it. It's the power of God for salvation to all who believe. The gospel is, the grace of God is powerful because it's God's grace. So it has power in and of itself. So now the grace of God, which was poured out on me through Jesus Christ, is the enabling power for me to lay hold of everything that he has said I He's promised me. If you don't believe that the gospel, that God will, will enable you to lay hold of what he tells you to lay hold of, you will live your life in fear. Because even though you know the anchor's gone within the veil, you will worry that you'll cut yourself adrift this end. Maybe you don't. That's what I would worry. That I would cut myself adrift this end. That I wouldn't be able to hang on. That I would start to abandon ship or something would happen and I'd get lost somewhere in the storm. So it's important for me that both things are true, that the anchor is there set and that the enabling power to hang on, even when everything looks bleak, is already at work in me. How will that play itself out in my life? How will I know that's true? Yes, I'll start looking at the Lord. And because I will want to hang on. Yes. I will want to hang on. Do not be afraid or anxious. Yes, do not be afraid or anxious. Okay, what can we see from Paul's life then in that Acts 27? First of all, storms, trials, difficult times, they happen. Get used to it. This is life. We used to say this is life in the fast lane, but I think this is life in any lane. This is life. Second, the storm has a way of reminding us or teaching us something about God. 
you know, we know the Lord, so the storm comes, and as soon as the storm comes, it drives us back to God. So therefore, we have maybe slightly forgotten something, or we have just got used to thinking everything's okay, and now we've been driven, driven back to God. Third, the worst storms cannot stop God's purpose in your life. The worst storms cannot And the result of it all, the storms in your life and the um, you trusting the Lord, what will be the result? Glory, glory, glory. And you will have opportunities to witness to other people about the grace of God. Remember Isaiah 41, verse 10. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Sorry, I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That is exactly what you see in Acts 27. And even if Paul had gone down with the ship... That's what you would see in Acts 27. The reality of God's word doesn't rest on our circumstances. So we have to get above the circumstances and trust his word. Yeah, I think I'm done. So, Father, thank you that, um, well, just thank you, Lord. I think these things will take ages and ages to go over and go through and work out and really um, trust, Father. We're just so easily tossed about by our circumstances. And and in a way, Lord, you know that because, um, yeah, you know that. And... And you, you took on flesh, Lord Jesus, and you, you lived amongst us. And, and, and Hebrews tells us that you were tempted in all things yet without sin. So you must have been tempted to um, be afraid to look at your circumstances and not at God, your Father. And you, you must have been uh, tempted to try to do things easier and, and to, to get through without relying on the Father and without honouring God. You must have been tempted to do those things, yet you always were without sin. And Lord, I just thank you so much for that because I know that you live within me by your Spirit. And so when I fail and when I fall, and when I don't remember to keep myself up where you are, Lord, you remind me that that's where I am, that's where I belong, and that you are doing all that I cannot do because you have promised that you will. So I, I just praise you, Lord. I thank you that you are a promise-making, promise-keeping God and that, and that you are in control. And that my life, though it may be difficult at times and though the storms may rage about me, I can know peace because I know you. And I just ask, Lord God, that you would help each one of us to really stand on your word, to really trust your word and to be people who are not tossed about and who do not crumble and who present 
your word, your life-giving, life-changing word to those who are sailing with us. So I, 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 I praise you, Lord, and I ask you to do that in me, in all the little situations of my life, and in all of us here, Lord, that you would do that in us for your glory, that we might better honour you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.